You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I'm your host, Troy Goodfellow. With me today are two of my regular panelists, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Hello, hello. Welcome. And freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hi, everybody. Now, I have to explain uh, why I sound like crap uh, today. Uh, not that our sound quality is ever epically good. Uh but I broke my computer today, so I'm talking to my netbook. <laughs> How did you break your computer, Troy? In a very embarrassing way. I spilled Coke on the hard drive. Oh, gosh. On the hard drive? How do you spill it just on the hard drive? Well, uh, because it's a Dell case and some of the cables for my Frankenstein machine don't fit quite well, I run with an open case, uh, so the side is open. And I was on the phone with my health insurance company <laughs> and, knocked, yeah, and knocked over a Coke. So I blame, I blame the American health care system. Perfect, perfect. Breaking this never healthcare. would have happened in Canada. No, never. Socialized health care has a whole separate clause about Cokes and hard drives. Well, I wouldn't have had to move the Coke away from the side where the phone was on towards where the computer was. So I wouldn't have spilled it. Uh, so that kind of busted my computer and busted my day. Uh, so I am talking to a netbook, which I love my little netbook, but it's really not meant for, you know, audio, visual, fun stuff. I can do the editing on it, but I'm not a huge fan of the microphone on it. So apologies uh, to our listeners. Uh, I'll do what I can in post-production to clean this crap up. Uh, Julian and Rob, uh, welcome back from RabbitCon. I'm still here because it's, you know, where I live. It's always RabbitCon never ends. <laughs> right. It's always RabbitCon. There's always a gin martini right around the corner. Uh, I was so glad to be invited this year, and I wish I could have made it, but my schedule really didn't permit it. You should probably explain to our listeners what RabbitCon is it's, and it's, why it's going to be a theme uh, for this show. I think there's been some very interesting stuff there. So, so it is. Uh, some people might be familiar with uh, a certain convention that happens in the Midwest called the Gathering of Friends, which is basically a house party that blew up into a four hundred person convention over the course of time. That's kind of invitation only. Well, having never been invited to Gathering of Friends, uh, and and lamenting the fact that I live in the middle of nowhere in New England, uh, I just decided to uh, twice a year invite. You know, a, a group of people that could fit into my house to come to my house and play board games. And it sort of blossomed to be about a 30 to 40 person event over the course of three or four days uh, every uh, Memorial Day and on my birthday at the end of January. So it's it's basically just uh, 30 or 40 people uh, of whom about 20 sleep here, uh, including uh, the, the lovely Mr. Zachney this time. And and his delightful girlfriend, uh, she's definitely invited back. I'm not so much, not so sure about oh, no. you. But. <laughs> that always happens. I know. No, she was. You were both delightful guests, and uh, and brought food. Uh, and we played strategy games. We played uh, oddly. We played some role playing games this time, which is sort of a first. Uh, and a little bit of rock band every evening. Uh, but but there was a lot of heavy strategy gaming that went on this time. And a lot of drinking, which is kind of par for the course. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much normal. Uh, so, Rob, what's it like? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, just imagine like the biggest, 
most game-packed treehouse you can. <laughs> um, and you've got a good idea what RabbitCon is like. Um, and then you have people drunkenly falling out of the tree from time to time. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's, you know, it's actually a little overwhelming because the moment you walk in, um, you know, after you say your hellos and you get the tour, um, someone's going to turn you and be like, so, want to play a game? And so it's just this nonstop. I mean, you know, the people the people at this event are just absolutely insatiable uh, for board <laughs> games. I mean, it's it's a little horrifying. Like, I mean, you know, I thought I was ready for marathon sessions, but um, you know, Lara Krieger's husband, uh, George, um, he just seemed to go from like epic game session to epic game session without slowing down. So you're always being pulled into new games, and there's so many games, you're always learning a new game. Um, someone's always teaching a game, so it's just um, it's it's funny you say that because this is I actually did not play a single new game this time. I tried oh, well, to, all new I, to me. I I tried to play uh, a game uh, which you know we've talked about sort of political simulations here before. There's a game called Campaign Manager, which is a a variant of an excellent series of games that started with Twilight Struggle, uh, went on to uh, 1960. And then, then now this is sort of the most simplified version of it, which seems to play in about forty-five minutes, and uh, it it, play, it replays the the Clinton versus Mc, I mean the sorry the Obama versus McCain campaign uh, using a really interesting influence system. And every single time I went to play that game, somebody else had just started a game already, and it's a it's a two-player game, and I I desperately wanted to play that. Did you manage to play a Campaign Manager while you were here? Um, no, I, I didn't manage to make that. Oh, gosh. Okay. That was the only new game that I really wanted to play. Um, although, although I, I think part of what we wanted to talk about this time was, was, uh, it, it's gotten so big that we've now started scheduling things cause it runs now from Thursday afternoon through Monday night. Um, and so we, we've started scheduling sort of certain times and certain events. And one of the things that we managed to schedule was to get um, a friend of mine, Steve Baker, who's a, a game designer. Some people know mostly from his games workshop days. He did Hero Quest. Uh, he did um, what's what's often known as the dinosaur game. I can't pronounce it. It's like Unsteigt von Dinosaur, uh, which is this amazing uh, German strategy game. He did Battle Masters. There will be a link, there'll be a link to the power pronunciation at the bottom. <laughs> Um, he also did Battle Masters, which was a uh, which was sold kind of as a hobby game through Games Workshop and Milton Bradley in a joint venture. But it came with a board that was four feet by six feet that was rolled up plastic and used GW miniatures, um, which is a brilliant card based strategy game. And and over the years, I've played a bunch of uh, tabletop miniatures games with him. He's a real history buff, and uh, I, I managed to convince him to come out this time and run a, a really unique sort of quasi-role-playing strategy game set in the Revolutionary War on a standard 4 by 6 uh, tabletop miniatures setup. And, uh, and Rob, maybe you – because I'm sort of – I'm still sort of caught in the glow of this. I'm dying to get your description of what this was. Um, oh, boy. It's – well, I mean, yeah, so you, ha you had a scenario set up on the board, but it, it wasn't really a proper miniatures game. It was more like a – it was it was a one-on-one -on -one role-playing session um, 
where the where where Steve was basically the game master, and the player was a junior officer in the Revolutionary War, um, trying to lead a detachment of Patriot troops up to a fort um, along the Canadian border that was besieged by British troops. Uh, so you're trying to take a relief column uh, through the backwoods um, along the border. But the the interesting wrinkle is that the the the, the setup. Um, is a Revolutionary War adaptation of a book that was written a uh, little before World War One, right, by a British officer? Yeah, after, right after the Boer Wars. Right. right. Um, called uh, Defense of Duffer's Drift. Um, and the conceit of this book is that this off- it's, it's like a military groundhog day. This officer keeps fighting the same battle. Um, reliving the same encounter again and again, and he keeps failing in different ways each time. But every time he fails, he wakes up, and it's just before the battle. He gets his orders, but he remembers, and he learns lessons from his previous failures. So to translate that into this game we were running, um, each of us who was involved took a number. Um, uh, Julian, I think you were number one, right? I was Run number. One, I was number one, and it was it was explicitly explained that I would die very quickly, which which is pretty much what happened. My session lasted. We each had a fifteen minute window to try to crack the scenario, uh, and I was wiped out, or rather, I should say, my troops were routed, and I suffered forty percent casualties as we ran through the woods like screaming children uh, in eight minutes. <laughs> Can you explain wow. the, the setup uh, for this battle? Uh, in some so, details? so sure. It was so the the idea was that you were playing this this as he said this from newly minted Revolutionary War uh, commander. Um, I, I I will apologize for not getting unit types right, but we were you were coming at the end of a long day's march, uh, and you were entering the fields of a farmer. You had uh, a, a total force of some two or three hundred units. Um, about a third of which were actual regular troops, although not veteran troops, uh, and about two-thirds of which were very rough militia. And you had one gun, uh, and, that was that, and you, had a, a, you had some Indian scouts. That was, that was the entire scope of your forces. And you had one day's journey left to go to, uh, I think, just to hold a fort, you know, some objective that was still a day's journey off. So you you were forced into the situation of figuring out the right place to encamp for the evening uh, and and fend off what you believe to be some British presence in the area, but you didn't really know much about it. Uh, And so you had the setup was the farmstead that you were coming into with cornfields and some rough terrain and a ridgeline that looked obviously strategic. and that was it. That was that was how it started. So my my experience, I pretty much got the exact same description that I just gave you and a set of units. And I had some terrain to look at. Uh, and and actually, we can I can post a picture to what the initial setup looked like. And that so and so initially, basically, you're, you're sort of like a role playing game. There no there were no rules initially, right? We were just sort of trusting in Steve to adjudicate a fair scenario. Uh, but we were in fact moving miniatures around. And and basically, I said, okay, well. Uh, it's clearly too late to get the next eight miles we need to get because we're going about a mile an hour with the artillery. Uh, I go and knock on the door and ask if we can, you know, purchase some provisions from the farmer and bed down for the night, like Revolutionary War troops did all over the Northeast. And, uh, and you know, over the course of a couple of interactions, I, I figure out what I think is the most strategic place to set up the camp for the evening. I try to set up a watch for the evening. I send my scouts out to do a little bit of reconnaissance to make sure we're not going to get ambushed. 
Uh, and then in the middle of the night, the cavalry and German fusiliers come in and wipe us out. Uh, and so the next person who came up uh, basically now knows all that information. They know, okay, there's an ambush. What can we do to prevent that? And so each iteration of this over 15-minute windows, the the initial questions take no time at all because there's sort of common knowledge. But the setup gets more and more complicated to the point where, Rob, you actually cracked the scenario, I believe, uh, eight sessions in. You were number eight. Is that right? I was number seven. You were number seven. Um, yeah. And so what ended up being sort of the keys, the key lessons, because that was the, the main thing was, you know, the point of this was like the book, Defense of Duffer's Drift, there were a number of, of core lessons. And I think there are some 15 or 20 that come out of Duffer's Drift that are some are simple, like, uh, you know, how to build earthworks and and how to defend an artillery emplacement. And some of them were which a bit more com- complex and Sun Tzu like in terms of how to use, uh, you know, use scouts and how not to, you know, never trusting anyone and things like that. And, and we were graded in our little 15 minute sessions on how well we did. Right. Did we did we commit any grievous errors? Did we do anything creative? And the way we were graded was with poker chips. So we got a white chip for things that were missed opportunities, uh, blue chips for creative things, etc. And so the idea was we would learn as a group of 30 of us watching this game over the course of the the day. Uh, and, and so what what ended up being the sort of key things that you did that you think cracked the scenario in the end? Um, well, I mean, the great thing about this was as you watched people, there were, there were several people who made like crucial breakthroughs. And one of the things I really have to emphasize about this is that, I mean, it was this great, like, you are there scenario, right? Like, I mean, by the time the third or fourth person was going up, there was this, like, feeling of paranoia that you were in over your head. There were threats everywhere. And the things that you were seeing going on around you were crucial to cracking the scenario. Um, so one of the things that um, I think the second person up, I think that was. Um, Carla, uh, she um, she figured out that the farmer that you know whose whose homestead you were staying at, uh, she figured out he was a Tory, um, and so the moment you turned your back on him, he scuttled off to tell the uh, to tell the this Tory Indian war party that was going around the area. He scuttled off to tell them your dis- disposition and number, and so if you didn't secure. You know, if you didn't take care of that, he was going to lead them back, and that was the morning ambush that uh, got Julian. Um, but I think probably the biggest breakthrough was um, early on. You you encountered this group of um, Mohawk scouts that come through, and they're looking for food. They're part of this war party. Uh, they're disaffected. They're hungry. They're tired of you know working with the British. Um, and so everyone else had you know either chased them off or um, you know, given them food. Uh, Julian, did you actually show them around your camp? Uh, no, I didn't show okay. them around the camp. Okay. Did somebody actually show them around and say, I, oh, I look, so, I think, so. I think somebody did. We have 47 shots for our cannon. Somebody brought them in, <laughs> I think, and fed them and then sent them on their way. And uh, they, they gave all the information. But anyway, so uh, Laura Krieger stepped up to the plate. And uh, uh, Laura Krieger, who was on our uh, gender gaming podcast back in January, one of my favorite writers and people in the business. Right, and she just went pure gangster on it. Um, did she? I missed her turn. Did she just shoot them in the head on sight? She did. She turned to her Indi- She turned to her Seneca scouts and said, "Do we believe these Mohawks?" And the Seneca just said, "Never trust a Mohawk." And so she killed them dead right there in a pasture, <laughs> um, and just left them there overnight. Uh, but she was still getting this this ambush. Uh, these Hessians would show up. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are several breakthroughs, and you know, every like it was important to watch and figure out what was going on, and build on other people's success. Um, so I mean, for me, the, the big key was. Um, by the time I by the time I stepped up to play, most of the uh, early moves had been settled. Uh, we knew how to deal with the farmer, um, the Indians. The the uh, the morning attack wasn't happening anymore, but we were still getting pincered between uh, British regulars and Hessians. Um, so what I, what I figured out was that, and this is where I sort of relied on, um, you know, just what I know of, you know, how uh, wars were fought along the frontier. Uh, the American frontier. Um, I decided to negotiate with the with the um, Mohawk scouts, and I actually managed to bring in the war party and feed them and get them to declare neutrality. And so they just left, and that changed everything because that meant the British had no idea I was going to be there dominating this ridge come morning. Well, but now, so how is that different than just shooting the Mohawk party dead? Um, well, okay, because... One thing Steve had done is he had basically um, every case he could he could foresee. He kind of had decided in advance what the re- what the consequences were going to be. Right. And the and the Mohawk were really the key to the scenario. Um, if you fed them and let them go, they would just go off and tell the British everything about your camp, and you get stabbed in the back. Dead. Right. Right. If you shot and killed them. People would come looking for the scouts that went missing, uh, okay. and they would find the bodies, they would see your camp, and they wouldn't attack with the Tories and, and other Mohawk because they didn't have the strength to attack. Uh, but they would go tell the British that you were there, and that's why you get pincered every morning. Um, but if you actually negotiated with them like I did, um, you actually got them to bow out of the war. Um, and that meant the British, when they when they hit me for the first time, they showed up and they didn't know I was there. So when they entered my killing killing field, um, they were in column formation, and I was waiting behind a hill. The other important thing that we learned was um, everyone else had made a camp, and you know there's all these camp you know there's the camp miniature set obviously and these beautiful white tents and everything, um, but what was happening was every time people made a camp. Uh, you can see white tents through the forest pretty well. Um, oh, and so oh that was, I didn't even think about that. Right, right. So they're skirmishers. They'd see you long in advance. So I was the first person to negotiate with the Mohawk and to not set up a camp. Um, and I pretty much staked everything on uh, meeting them along that ridge line. And from that point, I just employed a pretty standard um, reverse slope defense. Uh, so my troops were like hanging out just behind the crest of the ridge, so that you know the British would come right into range, and then I'd bring all my troops, it, like you know, like at Waterloo, right? They come into range, and then my troops step over the ridge and open fire. Right. Um, so yeah, after I was done with the scenario, um, we had we had met the green the green ships were um, for stuff that you had to do. These were like the the proper lessons that you learned over the course of the scenario. Uh, by the time I finished, we had learned all the lessons we could. We'd done about as well as we we could expect. Awesome. So the thing that part okay, of the reason. This is a, this is a, go ahead. So I, part of the reason I thought it would be interesting to talk about. It, I mean, it's a little hard to sort of visualize this scenario, but the the idea of this sort of iterative learning that happens in strategy games struck me very keenly in terms of how we play video games so much because 
you know, so many of the really great, certainly historical video games games we play are just about recreating these pivotal sort of lesson bearing moments in history. Right. I mean, that's so when we were talking about the Civil War uh, and Gettysburg. Right. I mean, one of the most documented combats in history. Yet we play it over and over again as if we're like extracting one more nugget for the next time we go out. And also, I mean, in kind of a bad way, uh, the iterative design is also what you see in a lot of real-time strategy story-based campaigns. You're walking your hero units through quite nicely. Oh, surprise, there's an ambush. Oh, surprise, man, minefield. So prepare for that because it's a puzzle that the designer has set up. Right, exactly, exactly. And and the difference is that when you're doing this against the AI, you're doing the, uh, this against the scenario designer uh, who is you know in the box, as it were. Um, right. You don't have this opportunity to to really be creative. I mean, that was one of the things that separated this experience from uh, the, my my sort of normal experience in a strategy single player campaign was that. You could do something that was really out of the box. And Steve, both because he had such a deep knowledge of the, the period and the scenario um, and because, you know, he had sort of established the scenario to start with, was able to sort of move, you know, bob and weave on the fly in the way that you really can't do uh, with an AI. I mean, you can really never do that with an AI. And that's why, in a way, you almost have to call this a bit of a role playing game because, you know, negotiating with a, a Mohawk tribe to convince them to abandon their Tory ways uh, is not something you're really going to model in a video game particularly well, which strikes me as a bit of a a, a problem, right? I mean, this is a problem right. that we see um, in RPGs particularly, right, where you've got sort of these set paths you have to follow, um, and which uh, it, it brought to mind more than anything else um, Jason Rohr's recent game, Sleep is Death, which is an attempt to sort of create a role-playing system where you bring the GM back to the RPG on online, right? Where you, where the other person on the other side isn't so much your opponent; he's the he's the controller. He's the he's the the world process in which you're playing, and that's part of what was so unique about it. Is I'm so used to the RTS genre when you're playing multiplayer, it is purely cutthroat to the death. Right. And in this case, it was so satisfying because while Steve was playing against us, surely, right, he was acting as the enemy. Um, he was also sort of a partner in moving the scenario forward in a way that doesn't happen when you get two people on the battlefield as equals. Who's, you know, the only interest is who gets the achievement point. So how did the uh, role playing mechanics and the war game stuff? Work out. I mean, do you, do they role play the war game as well, or do you have to die there? You set up a strategy, and Steve would decide, okay, that's a sound tactical move that actually works. That's that's definitely what he did. Um, you know, I mean, the, the comparison I made after the session was over. You need to almost think of it as like um, you know a staff school exercise. Um, you know, like a military academy or something. Where I mean, right. you're not rolling you're not rolling dice to adjudicate everything. There's basically an instructor present, and that's instructor Steve, who basically knows what, what can work here and what can't. Um, the, 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 the original Prussian Kriegspiel. Right, exactly. So, yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not leaving this to the odds. The instructor knows what's going to work, and based on what you tell him you're doing... Um, and how you respond to events, he can tell you how things turn out. And he, I mean, it's it's clear enough, like, he 
he knew the scenario backwards and forwards. He knows the period backwards and forwards. So, I mean, you know, you didn't feel like you were getting chipped. Uh, you didn't feel like you were getting, you know, screwed by a bad, um, you know, GM because obviously he was just, you know, skipping to the bottom of the page, right? Um, this is what would have happened. And you trusted his judgment implicitly. Right. Um, so you didn't feel like he was basically scripting the entire thing. Like he was listening to what you were saying and then he was just sort of running it through in his head. Right. And there were a few moments I saw he, I mean, I think this happened with, with, um, when, uh, Sean Sands, who had one of the critical breakthroughs, he actually forced him to reset the board cause he sort of moved it to the point where we were now surviving the night. And now we were having to deal with the field engagement, which was the part that you sort of came in and, and cracked the last piece of, right? So, and I think Sean was maybe fifth you know, yep. when he, when he came up. Um, he's Elysium from Gamers with Jobs. So he sort of cracked the initial role-playing part of it, which moved it more into sort of more traditional unit management and, and establishing what the forces would be for the battle. Um, and and when that happened, you could see Steve sort of had to had to step back and regroup a little bit because there had been a couple of creative things he hadn't really thought of um, that probably would have been difficult to adjudicate. And and I watched a couple of in, uh, encounters where people had tried to uh, you know they they tried different ways of positioning the gun. They've tried different ways of protecting their protecting their flanks. Um, you know, hiding in the cornfields, et cetera. And, and these were all cases where it would have been very easy to feel as the player, like you had been robbed, like, wait a minute, that was a great idea. What do you mean that doesn't work? But in every case, because of sort of his mastery of the scenario and, and the, the true strategic context of the day, um, it completely made sense why you'd failed. Right? You didn't feel like, oh, well, if I'd known that, you know, or that's not how the rules are supposed to work. And because this thing was framed entirely as like a learning exercise, an iterative learning experience, you know, it didn't really matter, um, you know, how things, you know, it didn't matter if you saw the mechanics of how things would play out. What mattered was drawing the right lessons from the last guy's encounter, listening to what Steve was saying and getting the right hints. But part, um, of, but part of what was so fascinating was from, from a game design perspective was we actually ended up did learning, did, we actually did end up learning a rule set. Right. And it's one that you could probably abstract and go right down. Right. I mean, in in this version of reality, which may be very close to reality, I'm not a complete student of the period. You know, in this version of reality, it takes X number of hours to dig an earthworks to cover your uh, to cover up the side of a gun. Right. It, you need to have this much distance from from, you know, a Hessian sharpshooter in order to be able to protect your artillerymen. I mean, we learned a set of things inside the scenario that, be, that were incredibly valuable and which could be committed to rules. But because we had to learn them as we went, it made it so much more satisfying, right? By the time you stepped up after the third and fourth and fifth iteration, you had a pretty good sense of how fast your folks could go and who was a good shot and who wasn't and, and you know, whether you could trust, uh, you know, trust your scouts and how much ground they could cover before nightfall. I mean, we really did learn a tremendous amount about the implied rule set of this world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wonder. We um, talk about the issue of players being cheated by a GM, and this is, happens a lot in role-playing games. It happens, you know, the issue of the, where the DM sees uh, the game as sees the players as somebody to defeat with his mastery. Of exactly. Yeah. Uh, which you see a lot of the time in bad dungeon masters, bad game masters who take on an adversarial role. Now, if no one had beaten the scenario, 
say Rob had failed, as he has failed at so much in his life. <laughs> he failed at that as well. And everyone had failed. Would there still have been the same sense of accomplishment? This was a system that could not be beaten. Um, it, it, to me, it didn't feel like a complete Kobayashi Maru scenario where uh, it was unbeatable and it was only about learning the lessons in the face of defeat. I mean, it didn't feel like that. Um, because it did feel like we were getting closer with every iteration. I mean, I, I, I took the bullet and went in first because I kind of wanted to kick things off and have everybody have fun with it and didn't want anybody else to feel totally gypped. And I've also played enough games with Steve that I knew it was going to be fun no matter how it happened, right? No matter how quickly I got slaughtered. Um, and so I can imagine if your only experience was you just had that first eight minute encounter and then walked away, you would have felt gypped. But part of what was so cool about this was the observation experience. I mean, I spent hours just standing on the stairs looking down at this board, um, sort of watching people interact with the scenario and seeing how they thought about things. And, um, I mean, this this unfolded over four or five hours. I mean, it was it was the course of a day for the most part. And uh, so so even if I think we had failed to completely crack it, I think it would have been a satisfying puzzle experience. Just kind of like, uh, you know, doing 90 percent of a crossword can be a very satisfying experience. And just because you didn't know what the capital of Botswana is doesn't mean you're a bad person. Well, I'd also say, too, that, I mean, yeah, even if we hadn't, even if we hadn't cracked it, um, you know, when people miss steps, um, interesting things still happened. It was like, it was cool seeing what a different mistake, how that would affect, um, how things went down with the morning battle. Um, so, I mean, even there, there was like a reward in failing because it was exciting to see, you know, how you failed. Um, the other thing is that, yeah, I think if we, if we hadn't, if we hadn't maxed out the snare, if we, if we hadn't beaten it, um, Provided, I think we'd still felt like we've been making progress and that there were solutions available to us. Um, I think you know, I think everyone was having a great time. I don't think that would have gotten old. I think part of what the part of, part of the feedback mechanism that made that the case, and this is something I would really love to see more in video games, um, is is the sort of mastermind color system of grading your performance, right? Where we got to see, okay, well, we don't know exactly what we did wrong, but we know we made one critical mistake, had three creative moves did nine things right and had 10 missed opportunities, right? So that, knowing that there were obvious missed opportunities, knowing that you did do something creative that was unexpected, that in and of itself was really satisfying. And I sort of, I was always intrigued to go to like, as somebody's turn was wrapping up, to go over and and, and sort of watch the dissemination of the score and be part of that conversation when people were saying, oh, wait a minute, we got another blue chip. We did something right that was unexpected. What was it? Like, what was that that we can re- reproduce? Or, oh, we made one critical error. Is it obvious what that error was? Or do we really need to have a big conversation with five people and try to figure out what we did wrong? That was incredibly satisfying. And that's the kind of feedback that um, you just don't get from video games. And I'm, I've been trying to rack my brain for the last two days to come up with examples of strategy games that I felt had really good teaching systems in them. Chess master. Like that. Okay, well, chess was the only thing I could come up with. But, I mean, have we seen it in any historical game that I just missed where where you feel like you learned as much by failing as you did by winning? Um, Well, I mean, I I, I like the the Great Battles of History series. I did a very good job of teaching you, you know, what they thought ancient warfare looked like. And it's a very controversial series and controversial modeling uh, of ancient warfare. 
uh, that their computer games, that their board games, do a very good job of, you know, teaching you a system so that you understand, you know, uh, their version of, you know, what the Battle of Can, how the Battle of Kanai would have went or would have gone. Sorry. The problem with that, of course, in a computer game system is that if the trust of the computer knows the rules uh, as well as you do. And that's always a problem. Um, I'm sure if I was a, a human player who understands it, a human player is much less likely to, for example, expose his phalanx flank uh, than a computer is. And that was one of the big problems uh, with the Great Battle series, is the AI just could not fight the battles. And uh, their phalanxes were brittle because the GMT guys argued, you know, the phalanx was strong at the front, but exceptionally brittle. Uh, so they, it was uh, Legion versus Phalanx battle was never as tightly pitched uh, encounter as it should have been because the AI sucked at it. Um, but aside from that, I mean, they're very hard pressed. You think of a game that teaches through its system. I mean, there are lots of games with great manuals that teach you. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but as far as games that through the system, you can discern, you know, this is how things, this is how the game designer believes things would have gone. Because in your experiences with Steve Baker, it seems like, you know, I'm sure you could make a strong case or a revolutionary war expert could argue with him on how he interpreted certain things. But you understood how he understood uh, the war uh, on the Mohawk front on the Canadian border, um, which is a great, great topic. And it's a great subject uh, for a lot of wonderful histories. And I would like us to stop calling them Tories and to start calling them loyalists. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hey, um, Troy, good news. Good news. In, In my iteration, when the Mohawks came back and announced they weren't going to join me, but they brought me a big bag of Tory scalps. Um, so, I mean, like, it was excellent. They gave me, like, a little parting gift. Against humanity against loyalists to the king. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's tough to think of games that actually teach through their system. Um, partly because game designers, computer game designers, really aren't that much into that anymore. Now, maybe it's one time there was... Um, and even then, they're very rarely teaching historical lessons or teaching other types of lessons. Uh, for example, I mean, Chris Crawford, Balance of Power. There's this game whose system taught, you know, nuclear war can't be won, that uh, you have to respect the other guy's sphere of influence pretty much no matter what. No matter how horrible you think the communists are, you just don't go poking around in Czechoslovakia because that's going to start a war. Uh, pretty abominable politics, but, I mean, that's the lesson he was teaching through his system. Um, what about the what about the idea of having the non-combative GM in these experiences? You know, the sort of Jason Roar RPG environment. Because that was the other part of this that was so satisfying was that um, I didn't feel like I was trying to beat Steve at his own game, right? Because that we, I mean, I, I have this problem frequently because the the denizens of of Rabicon. Uh, tend to be uh, very well versed in one thing or another. And so when somebody sits down and says, oh, let's play a game of chess or any other game for that matter, there's a reasonable chance that the person on the other side is a freaking ringer. And that can be that can be somewhat demoralizing, right? I mean, there I just sort of won't play certain games with certain people uh, be, unless I'm really in the mood for the social aspect of it be, 
because I know that if I'm I'm going to sit down and play, I don't know, uh, Risk 2210 with uh, Craig Van Ness, who designed it, that he's going to just totally slaughter me because he's has the system down. Um, and there is that that problem, I think, in strategy gaming, both in video games and, and otherwise, that when you get into these multiplayer games, quite often somebody is so much more skilled that they stop being fun. And wouldn't it be great if that so much more skilled person was actually treating it more like a GM and not as an opponent? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, or would is... that suck? I don't know. Well, I mean... Well, you know, just... <laughs> All right. Uh, no, just... I mean, I don't think we can... I think we have to be very careful talking about Steve Baker's game as... I mean, it's definitely far more an RPG than it was a war game or strategy game. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was it was an RPG with... Wargamey elements, um, but I mean, even even the lessons you learned were pretty were pretty much like I mean, this is what an officer would do in that period. Um, for me, the for me the question is, why don't we see more, you know, more games in that vein? Um, you know, one thing that uh, MK was telling me the next next morning when I sort of explained what game we'd all played the previous afternoon, um, you know, she had the idea that. If you could do some sort of um, sleep is death meets, um, you know, like Total War or something, where somebody is in charge of setting up the scenario and playing one side, but also lets you do all that um, stuff that just, you know, can't be put systematized too well. You know, interrogating the locals, um, talking to your junior officers. If you could have that sort of system, um, you know, I mean, how exciting would that be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that would be that would be awesome. I mean, I think that blend that blend is missing, right? I mean, I you know, you you sort of said it's not really it's not really a strategy game, it's an RPG with strategy elements. I agree with that, but it was also freaking awesome, right? So where yeah. where are more RPGs with strategy elements in the online world, right? Because let's face it, uh, you know, the kind of thing that happened here is the kind of thing that happens once every year or two. It's you're not going to do that every weekend. But man, would I love to, right? I mean, I'd rather give my 15 bucks a month for an experience like that than to World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, this this was a one-off because I think it was done in person. But I'm thinking, how difficult would it be to set up that scenario if you just had some, like, a scenario-building toolkit? Uh, basically, a virtual gaming table, you know, in your PC. And you could you could set up the table and then have friends come play the scenario. Right. Uh, but to go back to the teaching thing, um, I, I really like to single out, um, you know, Chessmaster, I think, is worth examining. We haven't really discussed it on the show, I don't think. Um, but one of the, you know. Because chess is boring. What? Because chess is boring. Heathen. Oh, my God. You're a heathen. We're, we're, we're called three moves ahead, Troy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I am um, aware. Anyway, so the, the thing about like Chess Master, I mean, what you get with that game is this incredible teaching tool. And yes, the game has it easy because you're dealing with a very clearly defined space um, that has these you know pieces that can only move a certain way. You know, it's 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 very easy to sort of lock down all the variables in chase. Just in chess, you you see how the pieces come together. Um, and obviously, people have been studying how to make computers play chess for you know years and years to get that experience to to draw on. But what I, one of the things I love is that when you play that game, the computer is recording everything that happened. 
Um, and so after you finish, you can hit a playback option, and you can walk away from your computer, and you let the computer analyze the living daylights out of your game. You can have it spend like up to like two minutes examining each turn. And when you come back, it will give you a post-game analysis that's actually pretty good. It's really good. It's it. I mean, I'm not I'm not a brilliant chess player, but I am definitely somebody who plays. I don't know. I mean, if I had to guess, I would play. Say, I play 200 games of chess a year, between virtual and you know real people online and and playing chess master on one of the 75,000 platforms it's been released on. And and its analysis of what you've done wrong at any given point in time is probably the most valuable feature of that game oh, yeah. because it doesn't just say, oh, well, you moved your knight here and that put your queen in jeopardy. It actually talks about like things you could have done instead. Well, and it shows you the complete like line of play. You know, exactly. each mistake you made, it says, well, here's what you opened up for your opponent and here's what you could have done. And if you'd done this, here's how that would have played out. And, you know, with most war games, for instance, all you get is, say, a turn limit, right? Where if you're doing really well, you can get this scenario done. In, you can meet your objectives in, like, eight turns. And if you do middling, you can do it in about 15. And if you're just craptacular, you know, you can, you can get it done in, like, 20. Um, but there's really, it really doesn't tell you anything beyond that. It, you know, at best, you'll get a hint that there's an optimal right. solution somewhere in there. But it gives you no idea how to reach it, and it just lets you sort of flail around there. And it also doesn't really teach you um, why the things you did were mistakes. So, I mean, I think the first step there would be to have a game set up to basically play the role of, like, Steve Baker or the chess master, where it watches what you do, watches what you do remembers it, and after all is said and done, can sort of replay the scenario and give you, you know, point out, you know, where things went wrong, rather than what we've got right now, which is either this complete puzzle box where you're not really given hints as to what you're doing wrong, or, you know, as you get in the RTS campaign, basically it's iterative failure, but all the solution is always learn what's going to happen next. Right, and and the the, the really frustrating thing I think in most RTSs is that there's no feedback on what went wrong. Nope. Right, so so you may have you know you have made you may have committed a classic error like sending your infantry up against armor. Right, I mean you may have done something really basically stupid, but. And particularly if you're not playing a historical game, if you're playing, you know, a StarCraft iteration or a Command and Conquer or something like that, where the units are sort of defined by whim, right? There's nobody that ever says, well, sorry you lost that one, but did you notice that you sent four units of infantry up against the anti-infantry tank unit that your opponent had built, which we told you about in a little radio broadcast three minutes in, right? You're sort of left to kind of figure that on its own. All you're going to get in most RTSs is a post-game stats breakdown, like who who produced the most what. You'll get an economic breakdown when someone who who harvested the most gas, who harvested the most crystal, who produced, who made the most uh, peons. Well, and yeah. and I'll I'll give you my reasoning why that's the case, and it's because I don't think most game designers believe that their games are long-lasting enough or important enough to provide that. Right? I mean, part of the reason why there's a market for the kind of intense programming that must have gone into the chess master feedback system because it's really damn good, right? Yeah. Part of the reason there's a market for it is because chess has, you know, proved the test of time, right? I mean, it's not going to go anywhere. People will be playing chess in a hundred years. There's no question in my mind that people will still be playing the exact same rule set of chess in a hundred years that they're playing now. Nobody's right. going to be playing Starcraft. 
Well, hang on. <laughs> okay, so no, there'll be no, some I Koreans mean, playing StarCraft. No, no, no. I mean, this is. I, I think this is an important point. Um, for one thing, I mean, people played StarCraft far longer than anyone ever expected. And I, now we're I, I know. Another, and, and, and now we're about to get another iteration stuff. on that. And Blizzard has completely embraced, uh, you know, the, the StarCraft battle reports. So what we're seeing, you know, and I would say that maybe for the first time, we're seeing an RTS. Um, begin to develop the sort of the sort of community and the sort of like you know existence as an intellectual pursuit that you know I really only see reserved for like games like chess. Um so for the first time we're seeing like bodies of work develop to explain and deepen the game. Well um, I, I mean well, there there are, there are limits to how good a report can be in an RTS though. I mean this isn't like chess where you can program okay the best optimal move for your opponent at this point will be uh, because it's turn-based. Well, no, you know, um, I, I totally disagree. You've programmed an AI to make a, a best optimum move given right. all available information. That's so therefore, if you've got an AI making a decision, you could program commenting on that AI decision process. If you look right? at an RTS, a lot, a lot of it comes down to things like uh, reflex, like perception. And not just how many turns ahead can you see, how well do you see the board, but, you know, can you use your mini-map right? Um, the thing with many RTSs is the AI has either perfect knowledge or has to be given forced imperfect knowledge of the map uh, because it's easier for it to see or not see uh, what the programmer does not want it to see. I mean, I look at a map like I did my column on... Um, for games that watch on the Zoom level, how hard it is on them in StarCraft to see everything you want to see. Um, the AI doesn't have that problem. And against a human opponent, um, it's you have all these other things coming into play that you don't have in a turn-based game. And the physical limits. Um, I guess Bobby Fischer reached physical limits in places, but beyond that, <laughs> where you have uh, that sort of issue. I mean, RTSs, I think, are different in very different in very major ways, and so are in fact many war games. Once you bring in the question of odds, like if a unit will do somewhere between you know five. And uh, that's a good points, point. Yeah, five and twenty points of damage. Well, you do that twenty points of damage. Something that shouldn't work works. Uh, if Steve is GMing it, or in chess, you know, in chess, a pawn will take a knight. It's not a question of the pawn will take the knight one time out of ten. Right. Right. In a war game, you know, that one time out of ten, it happens. Uh, in Civilization 4, it happens a lot to me, where that 90% chance ends up backfiring. Um, so, you know, there are, there are limits to, you know, say, well, what the optimal thing will be, because sometimes you've got to take chances. And I think a lot of, one of the great things uh, that computer gaming has brought uh, to the table is, and also, I mean, role-playing games in general, role-playing games introduced this, uh, to war games and strategy is the question of odds. Do I take this chance? Do I take this shot? Uh, a game master will often say, no, I'm sure you failed because this never would have worked or this would have worked so rarely. Um, so forget it. Um, you wouldn't have had, a, I mean, all the great, you wouldn't have had a Chamberlain's bayonet charge down the, the left flank of Little Round Top in a Steve Baker GM game. Right, right. Even though it worked, because that was just such a ridiculous thing to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, I think that's an argument right there. I mean, you know, you could create. I could. I could. Envi- I can envision a rule system that set that has it so that Chamberlain's charge does work because the Confederates are so worn out and exhausted, the morale so broken that that charge is the right answer. Uh, but I mean, to, to get back, if you, if you back, did not, if you did not know of Chamberlain's charge, would you have allowed? So that's the thing. We go back in history. Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. But you look at you know that went against pretty much every sensible thing to do. I mean, he was out of ammo. That's why he did it. Um, if you had not known a priori that it worked, would you allow that as a games master? I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know all the Union generals would have shaken their heads. Um, but I mean, but hang on though. But I mean, but we do know it worked, and I mean, I think that I mean we're all drawing from this body of experience. Like I mean, you know, I don't think I don't think computer games allow for these. They they don't they don't allow for these unforeseen outcomes um, at all because you know the rules are set up to produce real like in, in general rules are set up to produce generally reliably realistic outcomes. I mean that's that's most that's most wargaming experiences I have is right. that you know it's basically lifting from the history book is lifting from the textbooks and what works there is probably going to work in the game. Um, and what I'd like to see is a system that helps you learn the lessons in those books rather than sort of leaving you in the dark about them, hinting that there's these other possibilities, yeah. but without explaining them. Uh, just you know a couple of the you know a couple of th- ways that. You know, Steve taught players in this game was um, Sean Sands set a gun up, set the field gun up on this ridge line, but he didn't dig it in. So the next morning, when these um, German Jaegers show up, the sharpshooters pick apart the battery, and he just throws aside. You know, you can see they're getting hit from the flank, and they're killed before they can turn the gun. Um, and immediately, you can see other players thinking, "Well, we need to protect the gun." Right, earthworks, um, earthworks. Right, and he would mention, you know, this, the way that certain of your troops could outskirmish the Jaegers, and so you thought, well, I need to use the Jaegers. Uh, your militia would get unsteady if they didn't have regulars backing them up, um, and that's and that's how everyone learned. And I would say, you know, this is something that most games are just bad at doing: is that these are these are, these are not, you know, th- these are crucial elements of tactics and planning, and right. the first step is to have you know, a game or somebody step in there and be able to highlight, did you notice here in this game when this unit got cut to shreds? Well, here's what was going on. Here's the calculation that was going on. And here's modifiers that if you planned a little better, you know, played things differently, here's ways you could have changed that. And that's something we don't have. And that's something I think we sorely need. Um, because it, it allows you to get so much, it, gets, it allows you to get to the meat of the experience so much quicker. You know, I mean, it's it's more fun when you're when you're playing when you're using all the tools and you understand what's going on. It's much more fun than when things are happening and you're not you're not quite clear why. Well, this goes back to our tutorial discussion uh, a couple last week or a couple of weeks ago. I mean, one of the issues is the games are not very good at teaching anything, um, let alone I mean, even teaching how to play the game itself. Let alone any master lessons or tactics, or even basic lessons or tactics, unless you know you walk in with some knowledge already. Um, I mean, think of great GM systems. I mean, I think we can't conclude this podcast without mentioning uh, Neverwinter Nights, uh, the first Neverwinter Nights, which had an amazing GM system for a role-playing game, uh, which some people adapted for actually teaching about historical moments because you could 
adapted so well. You could mod it so clearly and carefully. And you could do a DM system or a virtual world type thing. There's even one set in the Revolutionary War, actually, to be honest. Uh, I'm not sure how far along they got with that. Um, so the tools are kind of out there. But I mean, even I mean, Bioware gave up on that because there wasn't enough interest in actually doing it. There wasn't enough money to be made in it. Uh, because these tools are expensive to do right. Um, and I think that's a great idea, and I really wish it could have been there. That sounds like it was an amazing experience. Uh, so maybe if I make the next Rabbit Con in January, I'll uh, Steve can do something just for me. <laughs> I'll pass it on. <laughs> well, just I mean right. one one last thought I'd like to add on to that yep. is that I wonder if part of the problem we see afflicting a lot of war game strategy games is that. There's this, there's this playset um, approach that's taken with them. So many war games are designed to have so, like, to have so many different scenarios going on within them. Um, that there's so much you can do in the game, and you don't actually see a lot of games that really focus on one, just a handful of scenarios where there are clear right moves and clear wrong moves. I'm thinking of the way, like, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, you know, like, each stage of that battle is right. sort of plotted out. Now, there was no teaching tool, but couldn't you easily imagine in Sid Meier's Gettysburg, you know, that, you know, Sid comes out or something, and it's like, you <laughs> which, know... Which did, he does in his see? games, just a little pop-up with Sid. Yeah. Right, like, did you right. did you see that they performed a flank march along this river and you didn't see them because you didn't have pickets out there? Did you notice that? I, and that, I mean, I could easily envision that system. But the thing is, not many, not many war games seem to be designed to have that sort of intimate relationship with a scenario that you get with a GM'd experience or that right. you get with a game like Sid's Gettysburg. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would go so far as to say even ridiculously simplistic games, like basic puzzle games. I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking like, I don't know, Tetris and, uh, you know, you know, Puzzle Quest and all these sorts of simple games where you do have these incredibly simple systems that would be easy to put um, some sort of basic teaching stuff in. They, they don't, right? I mean, everybody who's played enough Tetris, like, knows like okay well if you stack something up and you leave a force you know a four four tall one wide column you're setting yourself up for big points when you finally get the column piece right i mean these are things that never comes it never comes when you need it most but but even as you're setting these things up there these are these are teaching opportunities and and sometimes I, i come back to my point i think a lot of game designers don't actually believe their systems are important enough and, and have enough longevity to try to teach effective play. And I think that teaching effective play is not a sin. I don't think that you should expect your players to learn every tweak and then go to the internet to learn the ones that they missed. Great. Well, it sounds like RabbitCon was useful and educational. Uh, and you will, you're planning some sort of Gen Con thing this year. I could try to get to in the fall. Yes, I will. I will absolutely be at Gen Con. We will for sure do some sort of three moves ahead slash rabbit con slash gamers for jobs meet up something or other there. Even yeah. if you're not there, you can't do it without me. Uh, next, week, <laughs> uh, next week, we have uh, a pre E three show where we're talking to two public relations professionals in strategy gaming. Where we talk about the current marketing situation for strategy games in this gaming environment. How is it done? As a genre declines, 
how do you reach the market? And as the media environment changes, how do PR people respond? Julian, Rob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Good night, all.